it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. This week on Beer is a Conversation, I have with me Rami Abdallah, founder of Brayside Brewing Co. in the Melbourne suburb of Mordialloc. Opened in late 2019, uh, Brayside is set to celebrate its third anniversary this month for the first time in person after several years of lockdowns during COVID-19. But despite these challenges, Rami, who has a background in liquor retail, and his team have grown the business even further with a focus on both the brew pub offering and the wholesale and retail side of the business after going into packaging. We discuss all things bottle shops, brew pubs, and the growing pains of growth in this latest Beer is a Conversation chat, with a focus on some of the smaller players that provide the diversity and vibrancy that makes this industry great. Hey Rami, thanks so much for coming on. No problem, thanks for having us. No worries at all. I mean, let's start from the beginning. Tell me a little bit more about Brayside. I've obviously followed your journey. I've bugged you from before you even <laughs> opened. Um, so I, I obviously know, uh, but I'm sure I'll, some of our listeners don't. Um, so tell me a little bit more about Brayside and yourself, why why you started it and how you got into brewing. So Brayside Brewing Co. started essentially in 2018. It took about 15 to 18 months to actually set up. Our doors finally opened up to the public November 2019. So we timed it perfectly, as you know, four months before COVID. <laughs> uh, previous to that, I've been in the liquor industry since I was 18. So 20 years now, uh, catches up very quickly. <laughs> One of my friends while I was at Dan Murphy's in East Melbourne, he was a part-time brewer and also home brewer. And I'd had this thought in my mind, I've worked independent bottle shops hotels, the big chains, and I thought, I want to get onto the manufacturing side of things along with hospitality. So we had a quick discussion, found the location, which took quite a while, and Brayside Brewing Co. was born. So how did you find setting up? Obviously, Melbourne's well known for its brewery, so was it pretty easy run? I don't know if you've spoken to anyone else in the industry. In other places, it could be much more difficult. Uh, the councils might not understand what you're trying to do or something like that. How was that whole process? Tough. Very, very tough. There, <laughs> I've never been a project manager before when it comes to building, dealing with multiple tradies, dealing with equipment, uh, Southeast Water, the Water Authority, when it comes to brewing, of course. The property we had didn't have any gas, so you've got to dig up the ground and get gas put into the building. Every single little detail had to be done from scratch. The building that we're in now had been a diesel mechanic from the 60s. So getting a building from 1960 up to current specs um, and change of use permits proved very difficult, especially uh, convincing a landlord that you want to dig up his whole property essentially with all the trenching that has to go on with brewing and getting all that approved. But we're lucky. Our landlord has been absolutely amazing to us, very supportive. And just dealing with council though, it's very difficult. I had the right people in my corner. I got people from the planning department, uh, liquor licensing expertise, and just being very open with everybody before we actually dug the first hole essentially. 
And is that what you'd advise people, like anybody wanting wanting to set up, just yeah. keep that those lines of communication open? Yes, definitely advise it. Meet up with everybody ahead of time, so there's no surprises. So they might send you 20 pages of what they want, and you just got to make that happen. Whereas if you start and then you ask for permission later, they might go, well, this isn't what we do. No. You didn't ask us for permission <laughs> yeah. to do this. This wasn't part of the plan. <laughs> and I think there's a few people, even little bars at the moment, getting caught out with just not knowing. Um, and also just how long yeah. everything mm-hmm. is taking now. Everything is taking much, much longer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seemed like acceptable timeline before when you started kind of thing in 2018. Is that like sort of average from what you've heard? Uh, from what I've heard, yeah, it's about that 18-month mark, just depending mm-hmm. on what building you currently have. I was in a different situation. I guess if it's a newer style building, you might get away with a little bit more, but also your location, what your council rules are. Some councils might have a rule where you have to be 500 or 1,000 metres away from the closest residential. Um, Just depends on that. And also the water authority. That's That's the biggest one. Oh really? Okay, so we've talked, yeah. we've touched about water and water treatment and stuff quite a bit recently, and it sort of hadn't really occurred to me much beforehand. But people are saying, you know, this is some one of the biggest considerations that we didn't expect to have, um, and obviously, yes. uh, like the process of it seems quite onerous, and you it, like you say, it might not be something that you think of to start with. So how did that all go? We were lucky, being our water authority, Southeast Water. They've actually got a department now which specialises and only deals with breweries and distilleries because there's so many opening up. So when I gave them a phone call, yeah, they actually sent someone down who knows exactly what we're after. I drew out a basic layout of what I wanted and he just added what has to actually be done for them to approve it. And it was, yeah, it was they were actually very, very good to deal with. Very good to deal with. Yeah, the fact they've got someone dedicated now just shows you. Yeah, yeah, that's the amazing, industry. and that's fascinating in itself. So, did you have to get sort of a water treatment plant in there, or how did what did you tell you needed to do effectively? Now, essentially, uh, I told him where I wanted the brewery to be placed, how I wanted to be set up, the size mm-hmm. of it, and how we wanted the trenching to happen. So, the sump pit leading to the settling tank, from the settling tank, etc. How are we going to treat all that? how we're going to treat the pH levels when brewing, the filtration needed for the water prior to water actually being in tank, because the pH levels where we are is sitting at about 9.8 to 10.5, which is very, very high. So just how we're going to treat that. And they were amazing. They mainly cared about, one, the usage, but secondly, the waste. Where's it? Where's the water going to go afterwards? Yeah. That's an interesting one. And I know people are focusing on that a lot more because it's obviously really expensive, isn't it, to send water yes. to like bigger civic um, treatment plants. Um, so you want to avoid that as much as you possibly can, effectively. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of ways to do it. People use the IBC tanks to kind of get rid of everything afterwards as well. I designed my own settling tank and got that made to my specs for my size, the area that we have, and it worked the treat. Oh, fantastic. Oh, don't you love but it when they the had to approve comes it. together? So they approved the design in the first place. 
<laughs> all right okay fair play but it's good that they were getting involved and even at that early stage um that's such a good sign i think uh and just shows as you say the, the strength of the industry um but did you ever think when you were in liquor retail that that you'd be designing water treatment plants and things like no that? not never never thought i'd be designing settling <laughs> never. tanks never thought i'd be looking at filters <laughs> never thought i'd be caring about what color tiles go in the bathrooms um, you know, what size <laughs> oven we're going to use in the kitchen or deep fryer. It never actually occurred to me. But there's so many things that pop up during the build that you just have seriously. All I want to do is make beer and yeah. sell some food to go with it. But there's Absolutely. so much that has to go with it. Uh, Especially nobody realizes at, you know, that. How many kilowatts, no, like how many kilowatts can your building hold? We had to get that upgraded because of, you know, full-size kitchen, and then we wanted air conditioning, but we couldn't fit it. So we had to upgrade how much power we have in the building. There's just so many little things that pop up. Yeah, that's it. And like, yeah, you just, you have, I don't think anyone completely can wrap their head around all of these kinds of things, especially as you say, when you have that commercial kitchen as well. I think lots of people go down the route where they just have the tap room and then like get food trucks in. Yeah. Um, did you ever think about that? Yes. And are you, do you wish you'd done it? <laughs> It's a bit of a double-edged sword when I think about it because it would have alleviated a lot of headache. But prior to COVID occurring, the kitchen is what drew a lot of people in. So we had a premium kind of pub menu matched with premium craft beers and it married well. Not everybody drinks. Everybody's got that friend or a couple of friends who don't necessarily drink. So when they decide to go out, they want to choose somewhere that's got good food. And that was our thinking. They may not drink, but they can come here, have a really good meal, good atmosphere, and enjoy themselves. But having the size of the kitchen that we do is what affected the design of our brewery. So when COVID hit and our business model had to be flipped on its head and we went down the packaging side of things, our brewery wasn't designed for that. So it just made a lot of workarounds having to occur. Mm -hmm. And we don't look back on it. But essentially, if I was to redesign my brewery, it'll look very, very different than what it does now. <laughs> Always, what, what do they say? Hindsight's 50-50 or whatever. Hindsight, <laughs> hindsight, global pandemic, you know. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> couldn't predict that one. <laughs> so yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. It was very strange for me because, well, just like everyone else, it was four months into it. So we opened up and business was absolutely amazing. Then we hit a real lull in January, being school holidays, not knowing what happens in our area, our demographic. End of February started to pick up. March, the first two weeks of March were huge. And I thought, oh, this is brilliant. It's picking back up. And then bang, doors shut. Um, very weird for us. I was actually in hospital with my wife. She was uh, about to give birth to our second kid oh as God. the first lockdown was announced. So I'm in hospital. She's doing what she had to do. Yeah. I'm talking to the shop saying, you know, telling the kitchen staff what they have to do and how to pack up and what the plan is. And it was only meant to be four weeks. But as we all know, Melbourne copped a lot more than four weeks. Mm -hmm. So I think by the second lockdown, we decided we have to go down the packaging side of the business just to pay the bills. And that went from a pallet of lager and a pallet of XPA, which sold out in three weeks to having a full call range, releasing limiteds, um, getting into numerous bottle shops, getting into the chains, 
Dan Murphy's got on board very quickly with us, which was very good. Helped us a lot. Richie's IGA, the group was absolutely amazing to us as well. And then all the little independents in Mordialic and then the surrounding suburbs. They really helped. And then when we hit that 5K rule, something strange happened. We started getting requests from bottle shops quite away from where we are. And the reason for that is we had regulars who would come in to buy their beer, but they couldn't travel more than five kilometers. So they would go to their local bottle shop, request our beer, and then we ended up getting into all these bottle shops, you know, 25, 30 k's away. Oh, wow. And it was absolutely amazing. It was a really good feeling that the word of mouth is what got us through everything. And our local customer base in Mordialic is absolutely amazing. We really have the best customer base. I don't care what anyone says. That's really fascinating then. Did you have to, so you had to get mobile canning lines and things in like that. And have you brought a permanent line in now that you're sort of, well, COVID's, we want to put inverted commas, finished? Yes. Yeah, so uh, we got PatCan to start off with, mobile canning which was always nerve-wracking when they rock up. You don't know <laughs> because you don't have control over their system. Yeah. They've got control over it. We've only got control over the beer. Uh, there was quite a bit of wastage when we first started, a bit too much for me to handle. It was uh, <laughs> gut-wrenching at some panicking. point. Yeah. The amount of money that we lost, literally down the drain. <laughs> oh, um, but then last year we bought our own little single-head canning filler from the States and we've done about 35,000 cans now. Just single uh, single head fill, about eight, nine cans a minute, mm-hmm. and a single labeling machine, one can at a time, oh. just to start with. <laughs> That's okay. And start it gets us through. It's done the job. Yeah. It's, uh, it's doing what it does with what's happening in packaging now anyway. I don't know about labeling, how that's going to be affected with everyone going down the printed can line. Um, Mm -hmm. Better for the environment, better for labor as well. So it's just one of those things we're going to keep an eye out on. Yeah, absolutely. And did you ever want to go into package? Was that ever a a plan or was it down the line and you just had to sort of accelerate that strategy? It was definitely a down the line thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely down the line. We thought maybe two years because we wanted to make sure we got the recipes 100% the way we want it, especially for our core range. It pushed Charlie, our head brewer, just threw him right in the deep end. We had to do it. We had to do it quickly. We had to do it right. So he was quite stressed for a while. I put him under a lot of pressure. (laughs) And I think he did an amazing job. So we got there. It kept the lights on. And then it just grew. And now it's actually 50% of our business. Oh, wow. Um, We've got a second factory, which I'm in now, which is our storage and distribution. Looking after so many bars now, we've got... We're in Tasmania, hopefully New South Wales next month. So it's just growing. Um, controlled growth is what I like to call it. Oh, good. We yeah. can't well, just flick a switch and, yeah, we can't just flick a switch and service everybody. That'll just ruin us. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we want to do it slowly, carefully, and not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah, great idea. I know that's what I was going to ask you because we've seen sort of varying sort of outcomes of people making those pivots to package during COVID. We've seen people that absolutely went gangbusters and it stayed that way. We've seen other people sort of close their online shops and look at other um, options and say, oh, you know, package wasn't, it did or it did well for us during the time, but it's not really something that we're bothered about um, strategy wise. Uh, but it sounds like it's just gone completely 
through the roof, uh, even post-COVID. Uh, did you see any change from sort of when, uh, and maybe to be expected, um, some change when everything got back open and, you know, you could actually have your customers in your venue? Um, was there a, a little bit of a dip or did you just keep going? Well, it was weird. The start of this year was quite tough. It was very tough for the industry as a whole. We were in a different boat because it's all relative based on your size. I think it would have affected a lot of the larger breweries a bit more because they've already got a full customer base, whereas we were still finding new customers. So we still had that little bit of growth on the packaging side. On the venue side, it was very, very tough, especially the first probably four months, more than anything. In Vic, we had about 30,000, 40,000 cases a day of COVID being reported or a week, whatever it was back then. People still had a fear of going out. There was the unknown, the uncertainty of financial and economic situations as well. You also had a lot of people that left the industry completely, hospitality and retail, because there was no job security for two and a half years. Half a million people left our state to move interstate. So staffing and finding the right team proved very difficult on top of people not wanting to go out and spend too much money either. So the first four months of this year were quite tough. We got through it. We had our plans. We managed it. And now it's definitely on the up. We can see uh, we can see the trend going the right way for us, along with packaging. Excellent. Even better. I, that's something that, and I'm glad you brought it up actually, Rami. The one thing that we've seen a lot of is people really, really struggling with front of house staff, with chefs um, and back of house. It's like you say, there was not only a mass exodus of people from particular states and areas, but from particular professions and industries. And it's really impact. We've had people having to close or not having that kitchen. And as you say, you know, that is sometimes the draw card. Um, you know, for some people, the beer is secondary. For some people, it's the, the number one thing you go for. Um, but you always want to have that option in, in some form. So was it just a case of not being able to find any people? How did you attract people in the end? It was one of those things where pre-COVID, if I put in a an ad or a requisition for a, a chef, for example, I'll have 50 to 60 applicants there were times where it'll be open for three months and not one person would apply. That's how dire it was here. I'm lucky my head chef, who's part of the business, um, we kept him. And then it was just a couple of previous chefs that I had will fill in when needed and I'll be in the kitchen. So even weekend just gone, we were absolutely flat out. Mm -hmm. I was in the kitchen for hours on Saturday night just making palmas, making burgers, <laughs> just to, to make ends meet because we just can't find people. Mm -hmm. Even now we've got ads open. I know of one brewery, which I won't mention. They've had a job ad since November last year and they still haven't had – they've had two applicants. Oh, my God. Since November last year, they just cannot find someone. That's crazy. So it's it's tough out there. It is very tough. Yeah. I consider myself very lucky. I'm extremely yeah. lucky with the people that I have. I was going to say that you've managed to hold on to yours and um, like that in itself is amazing. So what about Brayside is like, oh yeah, we're going to stay here. <laughs> Do you pay a lot of money? Can I get a job? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that side of things, but yes, you can get a job. We are looking for people. <laughs> if, if you know come how to make food and, you know, flip, flip burgers, come on down. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh, just, 
So what we provide is a very family-friendly environment. We're not a late-night venue. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also attractive to people who work in kitchens. Yep. They're not there till 2 in the morning. Our bar crew are not there till 2 in the morning. So, And it's also, how do I explain it? It's, it's a very well-set-up kitchen as well for that team. And the, but the bar crew as well, the bar staff, they're, they're absolutely amazing. This is actually, although we're short on people, I think this is probably the most secure and best team we've had since we opened because it's the longest run we've ever had with a team. We had team members for a couple of months, then there'll be a lockdown, then they won't come back. So this is the longest stint we've had with a whole team and it really does make a difference when there's a bit of longevity. Mm-hmm. And you've got people with the right attitude as well. They're absolutely amazing. They're doing an amazing job. And I couldn't thank them enough. I've got a great team behind me. Fantastic. And it's so fascinating that you mentioned that I didn't even think about that as an option, that, you know, during all the lockdowns, that's an opportunity for them to go and find something else. Um, And obviously that's impacted hospitality, as we know. Um, But generally... I, and especially as we say, Melbourne and Victoria got hit so hard in so many respects, um, potentially more so than a lot of the other states that were open a lot of the time. I know we've mentioned WA and, and Tassie, for instance, uh, for some of them, uh, not all of them, uh, but some of them, it's just like it barely ever happened. Um, but in Melbourne and Victoria, it was something that was huge and just world changing for everyone. And all of these industries that have been impacted and are still being impacted by it. Um, but how did you find, um, sort of government support there generally. I know we spoke about a year in, uh, about 2020, I think, at the, towards the end. Um, and because you were a new business, uh, there wasn't necessarily a lot of help out there. What What's the what's the verdict now? Is it, was it, were, did you feel supported um, by the state government, by the federal government as a brewery? Or was it just like, a, we're doing this ourselves, we've got to get through this ourselves kind of thing? Well, it was a bit of both. JobKeeper was the number one thing that kept us going because myself and Charlie were allowed to get JobKeeper because we were full-timers, we were salary, but because we weren't 12 months old as a business, none of the cash jobs were eligible for it. So for a long period of time, everyone left and it was just myself and Charlie. So that's what made it a little bit difficult in that circumstance. There was a couple of grants that helped out as well which were really good. But again, all that was just to keep your head above water. I don't think it was there to to make money off it. Even now with the help of the landlord and the rent relief, that's all getting paid back as we speak. So that all ended and now you've got to pay it all back Mm -hmm. from that, whatever percentage it was, 70%, 30% um, of the rent. So it kept us going. Without the grants though, and the job keeper that we did have, it would have been extremely difficult. I mean, we had to freeze all our bank loans, all our repayments, but the interest was still growing on that. So that's all now catching up to us. We're lucky that the business is actually growing. So we're extremely lucky with that, that the business is growing at the venue wholesale and it's expanding. So it's not as bad Mm -hmm. as it actually sounds. It's still bad, don't get me wrong, but not as bad as it sounds. We're in a very, very, very lucky position, as I keep saying. And every time I see people out there from other breweries, I say, look, I consider myself extremely lucky with the growth that we're currently seeing. It actually got to the point where up until Monday, just gone, we, for about five, six weeks, I couldn't take on a single new customer 
due to stock. We couldn't make enough beer to keep up with demand, mm-hmm. especially for our pale ale and our IPA. Mm-hmm. We just could not keep up. So I said, look, no more new customers. I can't sell you a single keg. I had one bottle shop try to order you know, half a pallet, and I said, I can't give you half a pallet. <laughs> it's Good problem to have, but a problem nonetheless. It's a good problem to have. So we've gone down the contracting path as well now. Oh, fantastic. Just uh, for our core range okay. to keep that afloat. Excellent. Yeah, just because we're still brewing it ourselves, but every now and then we need a top-up. And if our tanks are full with our limiteds um, or even our core, we... Um, yeah, we go down the contracting path just to give us a chop out. And how are you finding that as well? Because I don't know what Charlie thinks of it, but I know lots of brewers are like, these are my babies. I don't want them to be outsourced. <laughs> is it quite difficult because um, you want to have that oversight? It is difficult. you just got to find the right brewery, the right people, with the right skills as well, the right communication. And I think we've found that. But it also frees up Charlie. The way I look at it, we're a very small brewery. We're only five heck system so 500 liters mm-hmm. if we didn't contract we'll be making the same four beers all day every day without any other beer mm-hmm. so it's almost like telling dealing with brewers is like dealing with chefs or an artist you can't tell a painter to paint the same portrait every single day for, for the rest of his life <laughs> or her life so it gives him the the flexibility and the freedom to go crazy weird and wacky as brewers are, mad scientists at times. <laughs> and he gets to have a lot of fun doing that. Absolutely. And he's got free reign. He has free reign to brew whatever he wants, when he wants. And it gives him that flexibility to do it. While the bread and butter, which is our core range, is paying the bills to fund all that. Absolutely. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, we talked sort of off air just before about how growth was such a an interesting topic in the industry right now. Now we've come out of the sort of weird stasis that we had during COVID. People are looking towards their growth strategies and um, it's got to strange points for some people where they're like, so what do we do now? Do we do we go down packaging? Do we stay as a brew pub? Um, do we set up another venue? What's your plan? What is, I'm, I'm probably jumping ahead right to the end, but how have you dealt with that kind of growth? Obviously, you sound like you've got a great team behind you and that helped. Um, but how have you managed this growth? Um, and what what's the plan? Is it East Coast domination? <laughs> Honestly, I don't know what the end game is. I actually don't know the answer. I do like seeing the growth, but as I said, it's very controlled. So I wait until I know, okay, right now we're at capacity when it comes to growth. We have a bit more wiggle room. We'll go a little bit further out and see what that does to our inventory and our production. So I'm always mindful about production. The last thing I want is to get a call from a bar or bottle shop that we supply who's been with us from day one. And I tell them, sorry, I'm out of stock. Mm -hmm. I can't supply you because I've got all these new people on board. So all the sales are still done by myself. We don't have reps on the road. We don't have anybody else on the road. So it's just myself. Mm-hmm. We take care of everything direct um, still. So no warehousing except for us. We've got the second warehouse purpose-built call room to have full quality control. And that allows me to know how much growth we can afford, if that makes sense. I know it sounds a bit weird. How much growth can you afford? But growth also comes at an upfront cost. 
So if you know you're going to attract 100 new customers, 50 bottle shops and 50 bars, you need to have the finances to be able to produce all that beer ahead of time. And as you know, three to five weeks to make the beer. If you've got the tank space, storage space, you just got to have that balance. I think some people might go too hard too quick, but it's just one thing I'm always mindful of is controlled growth. Mm-hmm. But look, if I go down the, up and down the East Coast or West, it'll be great. <laughs> but not yet, at some point, because you need to get up to Brisbane <laughs> not <yet>. for me. <laughs> not yet. Yes, I've got to get to <laughs> Of course. Of course. got to find a chef first so I can have a bit more time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please do. Um, but I think that is such a that is such a um, like a really strong way to grow that like as you say that controlled growth. Um, you know, like you say, some people will be like, "Oh, this is fantastic! Let's go, go, go! Let's invest loads of money in it," and then they realize that they've invested so much capital that they have to keep going and they have to do things that they might not necessarily have done without feeling that pressure without it being like a considered strategy rather than a reactionary one, I guess. Exactly. That's a really good point. Yeah, exactly. It can be really tricky. And especially for sort of um, smaller uh, owner-operated businesses like Brayside, I imagine that's like a huge deal because um, like not everyone's necessarily got your background in in liquor retail, for instance, um, and knows the industry in that kind of respect. But one thing that I was thinking was, um, especially even when we first spoke, uh, Rami, was that you obviously have that background, which is fantastic. Have you found it beneficial to you um, having known how bottle shops and how retail operates prior to, to setting up your own brewery? Has that helped? Yeah, 100%. I think it's been... One of the main reasons why we've had the success that we've had, it's also because it's not so much the way the bottle shops operate, it's mm-hmm. knowing customer trends and having dealt with the customers at a face-to-face level. When a customer walks into a bottle shop based on the layout of the design with all the, like I said, been doing it for 20 years, like Dan Murphy's first choice, the Coles Liquor Group, hotels, independent bottle shops. Um, I used to own one myself. They actually know the footprint. It's no different than a supermarket. So the way a customer walks in to grab what they want with the layout is the same thing. So that's what's helped us. We know what a customer is. Well, hopefully we know as much as possible what a customer wants. It's ever-changing, especially with craft beer. Customers with craft beer want to try everything. They might try Claire's beer, and it could be their absolute favorite beer, but they still want to go try everyone else's beer. So there's also that part of it too. So it's been absolutely pivotal to us to with the success that we've had with the retail background. Even Charlie Bean, who's our head brewer, he also has that liquor background as well from the retail side of things. So it's been absolutely, yeah, it's, it's probably the number one reason why we've had the success that we've had. Oh, wow. Is that background and just the customer engagement and knowing what the customers want. Mm-hmm. Okay, go on then. Share your pills of wisdom with everyone. What would you tell a smaller brewery that was looking into that for maybe the first time and just didn't know where to even start? What would what would you tell them? Whatever you've budgeted, add 40%. So whatever you think it's going to cost you to set up a brewery, add 40%. These days, it's probably even more now because the materials are skyrocketing, logistics are skyrocketing. The cost of everything, labor is through the roof um, due to the lack of labor out there and skilled 
uh, skilled workers in the brewery field. That's the number one thing for someone trying to set up a brewery is <laughs> have a lot of money. The difference with us is we don't have investors. So that's what made it a bit more difficult for us at the start. It was just myself who sold everything, borrowed everything. So it kind of makes it a bit more difficult in that regard. Mm-hmm. But it also gives me the freedom to do what I want without asking for permission, which is great. For someone getting into a bottle shop, my thing is is just know your product and know what you're going to compete against. You have to know, as well as you know your own product, you have to know the competition. So f- find your niche. So I know what ours is. When we set up the brewery, the style of beers we were after was based on our demographic. We knew what they wanted. And that's the beer that we went down. That's the path we went down. And it's proved very effective for us. So, for example, where we are, we're 29% UK expats. Uh. So we made malt forward beers, nothing too crazy, <laughs> nothing overly hoppy. You know us Everything well, sessionable because you know that's the well. style they wanted. That's it. And then uh, <laughs> we still made the weird and wonderful, the limiteds. But when it came to our core range and what's available on tap when we very first opened, we needed our locals to have that support. And, yeah, whenever we have our expat-style beers, they go through the roof. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> I love that. So good. Actually, bottle shops have been on our radar, um, mainly the, the big chains, Endeavor Group and um, the Coles uh, Liquor Group as well. They've been on our radar for a little while um, because of their focus on craft beer and predominantly making their own private label beer and um you know we've seen those sort of uh product lines grow in within the bottle shops and they are obviously competitors of the independent craft beers that are next to them um is that something that you've had to think about is that a problem am i being overdramatic in saying that um what what do you think what what's the verdict from that sort of smaller supplier angle Bit of a strange one because, of course, it is a competitive brand, but that same competitive brand is selling my beer as well. So it's one of those things. Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a strange one, but it's been happening for a very long time. So most of the wines that you see on the shelf at a Dan Murphy's, at a First Choice, a big percentage of them are their own brands without you knowing it. It's, I think though, if customers just educate themselves to find out, look for that seal, look for that indie seal on the can. That is the number one weapon that we have against like with the competition. So for them to say, oh, look, they might be drinking a can thinking it's independent. There's still people out there that will see Fat Yak and think it's independent or Yenda and think it's independent. You still get that clientele. But if it doesn't have that indie seal, it's not an independent brand. Mm-hmm. So that's the number one thing. I think if we can get that across to consumers, that'll help the whole independent craft industry. Mm-hmm. And also the bars. I think I think we talk about bottle shops more often than on-prem. Yeah, so the on-prem, what that does for our branding. I mean, not everyone wants to spend $25 on a six-pack they've never heard of, but they're happy to spend $7 on a pot to try a new beer. And that will then hopefully transition to a six-pack sale at the bottle shop because, oh, I had that Leadhead Lager. I really enjoyed it. I want to try the XPA from Brayside. So they're happy to then risk that $25 because they've had something of ours. Yeah. 
and that's part of that whole ecosystem of sort of brand recognition and what bottle shops do. But I think it's really interesting that you've made that division between um, the major chains and what the independents can do. Uh, you know, we don't expect the independents to take the place of a dance in terms of uh, reach, I guess. Um, maybe the fact is, like you say, that they do two very different things for a brand, but they all lead down the path of that that brand recognition piece that that you talk about. Um, so maybe maybe we have found the balance. Um, maybe we just need to tease that out a little bit, talk a little bit more about how we operate as an industry and and sort of emphasize that. <laughs> exactly. Well, what the independents have done, honestly, in the last ten years, when it comes to craft beer, it is absolutely amazing. They're they're probably the reason why the bigger chains got so heavily put into craft beer in the first place is because it was so dominated by the CUB and Lion products, the independents went the other way, created a big support base for independent craft beer, and then that just grew into what it is now. Um, like I said, the richest group are, are big on that, but we've got little tiny bottle shops around us as well in Mordialic, Chelsea, Edith Vale, who do amazing stuff with craft beer. And they're growing the brand at a local level for all of us. So it's absolutely amazing. And they, they're big on the indie seal as well. So just educating customers that if you see that seal, it's an independent brewery. Mm-hmm. If you don't see it, it's pretty much a line product or a CUB product. And do you think then that, sorry, this is maybe a two-parter, Number one, do consumers and how much do consumers care about the independence of products that they buy, especially beer? And secondly, has that changed over COVID or is it just a sort of a continuation of a trend? I think COVID really highlighted it even more so that customers and consumers are looking for supporting independence, supporting local. I think that it happened during COVID and it's continued. If a consumer sees a six pack for $25 versus a similar product for $23, but if they know the one on the left is independently owned, they're not going to care about that $2. Mm-hmm. They will buy that one to support it. So I think it's been, it's one really good positive from COVID is the support mm-hmm. of the local supporting local businesses, supporting local brands, supporting Australian-made products. I think it's actually really helped us ver- um, versus what it was prior. And you know, it's, as we say, it's something that we should capitalize on as an industry and and keep going with that education and keep going with that um, consumer education piece uh, to un- to make sure that people do understand what that is. And I know the IBA are doing fantastic work in that area as well. Uh, so that's all we can ask for, I guess. Now I've I've already chatted to you quite a bit, yes. Rami. I hope I hope I haven't taken up too much of your time. But one thing I wanted to talk about, and I've brought it up in the past couple of uh, Beer is the Conversations I've done because um, I think it's super important to talk about. Um, So we spoke to Dave McGill, who's at Deep South Brewing a couple of weeks ago, and um, he he had a little little one while he was um, setting up the brewery. I know you've uh, just mentioned that you had your second uh, when COVID hit. And, you know, 
maintaining a family and a new business and a business full stop must be complete madness. Um, how do you do it? What's the secret? Um, what, what's the plan? Tell me more. I've got a very patient wife. <laughs> I've got a very patient, understanding wife. Uh, that's, that's, that's the big thing. But before we set up the brewery, um, she understood that the hours that it may take to run a business there is a lot of guilt trips, not so much from her, but from the kids. The kids are now five and two. So when they're off on a weekend and I get called into work and I have to do a 70, 75-hour week, like last week, it is a big guilt trip that occurs, but it's just that it's just a balance that you have to try and work out, have the right people with you. Now that we've got such a good team, it I do get a bit more time at home with the kids, but it's just that constant working balance and just communication the good thing that does help is that my wife does all the admin and paperwork so she's also part of the business Helpful. so she's she's involved in it she's not separated from it so everything that goes on she's all over so she's well aware of it it's more the kids the kids can uh yeah. there's only a short time you have in your life where you're your kid's superhero <laughs> and before you know it you're the kid's ATM and that's all you will be for, for <laughs> until they get married and have kids. <laughs> so at the moment, I'm still the superhero yeah. and I give it probably, you know, six, seven years before I just become an ATM just handing out money to them. That's all I'll be to them. They end up, they end up liking you eventually though. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, when they have kids, they realise just how hard it is so then they start liking you again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, as you say, I think it's a huge part of being that owner-operated business is um, – you, you know you're going to have to put in that hard yakka for the first few years. You're going to have to graft, and that's inevitable. Whatever business you set up, it, whether it's a brewery, whether it's accountancy firm, you're going to have to do that when you start up. And it, yeah, exactly. That's just how it is. Um, but like you say, when you get those people in, that's when you can have a bit of breathing room, I guess. And um, so when did you bring Charlie in? Charlie's been from day dot. Um, we were working together. Oh, yeah. yeah we were working yeah. together at Dan Murphy's. Mm-hmm. I was the store manager. He was a junior manager. I pulled him aside. Actually, no, he was in Sydney on holidays. And I called him after I had just locked in the site. And I said, this is what I'm doing. Keep it, keep it very low key. Mm-hmm. But do you want to come across and be the head brewer? I don't know what I can pay you. It's probably not going to be much at all to start yeah. with. Um, and he was... He was super keen. He said yes right away over the phone. And then we just worked on it together. Mm-hmm. And he's been with us ever since. Oh, and that helps, doesn't it? To so have it's been to amazing. Give him, you can split that responsibility. It helps because yeah. he's in the same situation. He had a second child during one of the lockdowns, whatever, whichever one it was. <laughs> so he's got two girls. I've got two boys. The, his wife helps us out quite a bit with uh, label designs as well. So her and Charlie, everything's done in-house for us. So all the labels, all the designs, all the recipes, everything's in-house. All the wholesaling I do myself. And yes, it adds a bit more hours, but one thing it does is I walk into one of the bottle shops and they know they're dealing with the owner. Mm -hmm. It helps a lot. Uh, It has benefited us. If there's something that's not working, I can make a decision on the spot to help out that store. Um, they know who Charlie is. They can call Charlie and have a chat to him about the beers or what they're looking for in the future when it comes to future brews. So they've got all our contact details 
all the independent bottle shops. So anything they need, they just give us a call, shoot us a text message. It's a unique situation we're in and it's a unique design of business that we've created mm-hmm. where it's just created that rapport that you need to have with other businesses and just understand what they're going through. For example, at the start of the year when everyone was doing it tough, you've almost just got to be that support mechanism for a lot of these businesses who are struggling. Don't go in there trying to sell them anything. Just go in there to support them in any way you can. On that front then, especially talking about um, communicating your beers, uh, what what's going on? Uh, what beers are you making? What's what's on the agenda at the minute? Because I know you've done some really fascinating and like wonderful uh, collaboration beers. You did one with Bintani. Um, what have been the highlights for you in terms of Brayside's beer over the past couple of years and what's on the agenda next? I actually got asked this last week. By someone, (laughs) similar question, similar question. They said, all right, so what's coming up? And we've got our Christmas oak lager coming back. We have our swoopy sour uh, salted blood plum coming back as well. Oh, lovely. But we also have our birthday beer coming out because we turn three next month. Yes. So we finally actually get to open for our third birthday. It's the first time we've been open (laughs) without restrictions (laughs) for our birthday. So it's our third birthday. We're doing a triple dry hopped XPA, being three, do a triple dry hop. So we're looking forward to that. So they're the three newbies coming out in package. In kegs, there's always a lot of weird and wonderful stuff coming out from Charlie, Charlie's (laughs) hands. Yeah. But my favorite beer probably that we ever made was the hardest selling beer. We did a, along with the Zamba, which we did with Bintani, which I absolutely loved. But we did a 100-day Pilsner during the really long lockdown where it was lagered for 100 days on top of after the brewing process. And I thought it was an absolutely amazing beer. Yeah, that sounds stunning. Could not sell it. It was <laughs> such a hard sell. <laughs> Ended up taking a lot of it home myself. That's but the bo- a lot of the bottle shops struggled to sell it because it was a lager. And I'm thinking, but it's what? delicious. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, it's just one of those things. It's just a weird thing. Not always what is your favorite is what's going to work. So it's just one of those things that comes with businesses. Absolutely. Well, um, thank you so much, Rami, for coming on Beer is a Conversation. Um, I hope I haven't uh, grilled you too much, um, but really appreciate it. Always happy to That's right, I'll send you the invoice. Oh, bloody hell. (laughs) You're a hard taskmaster, Rami, is all I'm saying. (laughs) But no, really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, Always lovely to have a chat. Um, As uh, our listeners probably have heard, Rami and I are like pen pals and we chat very regularly. Um, so it's lovely to actually get you on record now for this one as well, uh, which I very much appreciate. Uh, but thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for having me.